So I, I um, a number of years ago, discovered, kind of on my own, something that other people have discovered before me. It's like one of those times where it's like Torah. So like, of course, no, someone knew about this before. But I kind of made this discovery, like, wow, um, there's just all these connections between, uh, between Pesach and Purim. Um, a few weeks ago I would have said between Purim and Pesach, but our minds have kind of shifted now. And so what I'd like us to do tonight is to look uh, at Pesach, and then look at Purim, and think about other... Hello, welcome. Just started. Great to have you here. Um, look at some holidays, see how they all come together, and, and try to appreciate the meaning uh, and the importance of, really, of, of Purim, actually, as a follow-up. Thank you. Wow. Thank you so much. Um, see, at Kohove, we need all these markers because you never know if any of them is going to work. Here it's like Trisha, so we got a whole you know, fun, exciting rainbow. <laughs> Great. So, um, you know, and, and to think about the meaning um, of, of the entirety of the Jewish calendar and why it is that Pesach really does start off the year and why it is that Purim ends off the year. And when I say that, it's actually very interesting because Pesach really is the beginning of the year, right? Hachodesh Hazelachem Rosh Chodeshim. We, you know, recently read that, um, both in the context of Parshat Hachodesh, just before Rosh Chodesh Nisan, as well as in, in Parshat Bashalach a few weeks before that. And that sense of, um, of knowing that, um, that we are at the beginning of the year, that this is sort of the starting point. Uh, and that Pesach, therefore, is the first biblical holiday. And then knowing that Purim is the last biblical holiday. And knowing that they're always a month apart from each other. Right, and that therefore there's really nothing that goes in between because holidays happen in the middle of the month when there's a full moon and so the full moon of Adar the second Adar by the way when there are two Adar so it's really the end of the year that is Purim and then the, really the next opportunity we have to celebrate becomes Pesach and so I wanted to think about as the Talmud says that we're being Somech Geulah we combine we bring one uh, one Geulah to the other we combine these two we make them as close as possible to each other, and actually there's a teaching um, that you don't have in front of you because I, I kind of came across it at the last minute, um, I don't even have it here, of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, who teaches that the Simcha of, um, the Simcha of Purim sort of starts us off on this run-up to the Simcha of getting out of Egypt and then the Simcha of Kabbalah Torah that happens with Shavuot. So it's kind of a different way of thinking about the holiday season that we're used to thinking about where Pesach, Shavuot, and then Sukkot. Sukkot being like, okay, now it's going to be the autumn, the fall, and it's going to kind of quiet down. We go home for the winter and then come back in time again for Nisan. Right. You said that Purim comes at the end of the year? Ah. What do you mean by that? So, you have to think biblically. Right? It's a very good question and one that maybe I'll just, you know, remind us that the Mishnah in Rosh Hashanah says there are four different Rosh Hashanahs, right? Four different new your days in the Jewish calendar, okay? The two that we're talking about tonight, it are? Rosh Hashanah. Good, so what? Alice, you're calling Rosh Hashanah, so Aleph Tishrei, the first of Tishrei, is the one that we all think of with Rosh Hashanah, right? The holiday season that happens around September, October, right? That is Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot. And really, though, if you look in the Torah itself, it doesn't say that the first of Tishrei is actually Rosh Hashanah, it's called Yom Truah, right? It's a festive day, but it's not only the beginning of the year. If you look at actually, as, as we're going to look at the sources that we have here, if you look back and actually the first mitzvah that we're given as the Jewish people, Am Yisrael, in the book of Exodus, we're told, the month of Nisan shall be for you the first of the month. The first of the month that will be for the entire year, and that's actually biblically how we count as a result of that years. Okay? And if you look at other places where it talks about, you know, in the month, in, in the year, you know, whatever, right? In the first month of whatever year, it's always going back to the first month based on the count from, from Nisan, actually. Okay? Important point. So, that's one. Then we've got Allah Nisan. The other two, just the, that we talk about, one is. The first of Elul, which of all of them is probably the least popular. And then what's the fourth one? Taxes. And what's the fourth one? Tubishvat. Ah, good. So Tubishvat, the 15th of the 15th of Shvat. Okay. But according to Beit Shammai, it's actually the first of Shvat. Okay. So there are your four different Rosh Hashanahs, according to the Mishnah, first Mishnah in Masechet Rosh Hashanah, okay? Which in general, by the way, that Mishnah that talks over there about Rosh Hashanah just talks about the Shofar and other means both. But in general, in the Bible we count from Nisan, okay? The spring, the renewal <coughs> season of the year, okay? 
So let's check that out. Do you have him for a second? Yeah, hi, go ahead. What's your name, sir? Eleanor. Hi, Eleanor. Welcome. Nice to meet you. I'm Eleanor. Hi, go ahead. Yeah. And then we'll jump into this. You, um, you said earlier that um, that it could be perceived that Pentecost is the beginning of the year and mm-hmm. then being the end of the year in a biblical context. But um, I don't know if this is wrong, but isn't Perm not mentioned in the... Um, We're going to get back to all of that. Don't, don't go anywhere, okay? Give me, uh, I don't know if that clock is accurate, but give me, give me about 45 minutes, okay? okay? And then we'll, we'll, if it's not clear by then, if it's, or if it's clear as much as they say, come back to me, okay? Thanks. Good. Okay, so let's do this. So you got... You guys over there. Y'all are over here. Maybe one extra over there. Let's get started. Okay. So, speaking of uh, Rosh Hashanah in, in the Bible, do you want to start us off? Because we just kind of talked about this. You can read in English. Okay. okay. Take it away. The Lord said to Moshe and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall mark for you the beginning of the month. It shall be the first of the month of the year for you. Speak to the whole community of Israel and say that on the tenth of this month each of them shall take a lamb to a family, a lamb to a household. But if the household is too small for a lamb, let him share one with a neighbor who dwells nearby, in proportion to the number of persons. You shall contribute for the lamb according to what each household will eat. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a yearling male. When you take it from the sheep or from the goats, you shall keep watch over it until the fourteenth day of of this month, and all the assembled congregation of the Israelites slaughter it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it, and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they are to eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. I've heard of this somewhere. <laughs> Do not eat any of it raw or cooked in any way with water but roasted, head, legs, and entrails over the fire. You shall not leave any of it over until morning. If any of it is left until morning, you shall burn it. This is how you shall eat it. Your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it hurriedly. It is a Passover offering to the Lord. That night I will go through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and I will mete out punishments to all the gods of Egypt. I, the Lord. And the blood on the houses where you are staying shall be a sign for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you so that no plague will destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This, this day shall be to you one of remembrance. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord throughout the ages. You shall celebrate it as an institution for all time. So we just read. First of all, commandments about this being the beginning, right? That whole thing. Second, we just read what we call Pesach Mitzrayim. What does that mean? Pesach Mitzrayim? The Passover of Egypt. Okay? Simple, right? Passover Egypt, which really I would call proto Passover, because this Pesach becomes the model for all Pesachs that come later. Buried within what we just read, those 14 verses or whatever it was, we find many of the components of the Pesach that we continue to celebrate as we entered into Eretz Canaan, built the temple, celebrated the Korban Pesach, the Passover offering, and really that tradition continues even to this day. We don't have the offering, but we talk about it, and we point to something on the Seder plate that's supposed to remind us of it, even if we're not actually going to be eating from it, right? We have matzah, we have maror, right? We sit and talk about the story of the Exodus. We don't actually, you know, gird our loins and wear our sandals, Although, actually, do we? Aren't there customs, especially in the Sparta community, of people who actually walk around the Passover Seder table and say to each other, we're going, we're going, we're leaving Egypt, right? Just went to the Seder with a Persian family, and the mother, the Persian part of the family, actually said to her children, where are we going? And the children said, we're going to Israel. Where are we now? We're in Egypt. And they really acted and they talked it through. Their customs of beating each other with scallions, carrying bags, walking around. All these different things are about about reenacting that proto-Passover, Pesach Mitzrayim. So you would think that if this is proto-Passover, and don't look ahead, by the way, if you would think that if this is proto-Passover, because I caught you doing that, that this would be the first Passover in the Bible, right? This is the first Passover in the Bible. You can't have a Passover before the historical events take place, can you? Not so much, right? Except that midrashically, we actually do. So now please turn to page two. We can stay over here for a little bit, I think. 
Turn to page two. Who wants to read the top of the page? Page two. Page two. Page two. The two angels arrived in stone in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of stone. When Lot saw them, he rose to greet them. And bowing low with his face to the ground, he said, Please, my lord, turn aside to your servant's house to spend the night and bathe your feet. Then you may be on your way early. But they said, No, we will spend the night in the square. But he urged them strongly, so they turned his way and entered his house. He prepared a feast for them, baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now just pause for a second. I'll remind you that this is Lot being his hospitable self. The other part of what happens next is that when the men of stone come and want to do not nice things with these guys, that uh, he offers his daughters to them as a bride to get them to not want to take these guys out and hang out with them. And the, uh, you know, you kind of feel that tension in terms of load and is he sort of like being really hospitable and a good guy here or not. But that's a whole other conversation. If you look here though, what is Lot making for them that night? Unleavened bread. Unleavened bread. And they ate. And Rashi says, and they baked, he baked unleavened bread. It was Passover. So, one second. What does it mean to say that they're making on they're eating unleavened bread and therefore it's Passover? Let's talk about that a little bit. Is that your general direction of query? Um possibly. Possibly. Hold up for a second, yeah. I I see it as sort of like foreshadowing for the destruction that happens afterwards. Okay. Because yeah. Jo- okay, good. Keep that in mind for a second. Let's let's get some other thoughts. Yeah, hi. Well it seems to draw a very correlative relationship between unleavened bread and Passover. Meaning that the only reason they would ever be eating unleavened bread uh, is only if it were Who's Mata during the year? Right? I've heard people say that. Right? It's like the thing that you pull out when there's nothing else to eat on Shabbos and you need another, you know, piece of bread, right? But like really, who eats matzah? It's a right? So if he's eating matzah, it must be Pesach. That's kind of the implication. Good. Out. Well, one of the things that, that struck me is that when I was when we were rereading the first page is that we always talk about how the blood on the doorpost is like part of the what leads God to pass over uh, the you know, houses of Bene Israel. But what if it's really I mean, not the blood's not part of it, but what if it's really the, the Pesach, the consumption of the Pesach, uh, the unleavened bread and the, and the lamb that leads God to pass over the houses of Bnei Israel. So since you have the same thing being enacted, I see the same parallels being enacted here, where they eat the unleavened bread, and then when God, that you could argue that that's the redemptive act that leads God to pass mm-hmm. over later when he rains his hell down in stone. So you're all alluding to which is that there is a symbolism in eating matzah. Oh, let, let me back up for a second. Why is Lod actually making matzah? Shot, right? Actual, basic understanding of what factually is going on over here. Why is Lod making the matzah? For food. Well, that's what the Midrash, that's what Rashi is quoting here. Good, because we're going to get hats. Thank you. So let's think about this for a second. How do you make bread? You let it rise. Good. What does all that take? Time. Time. Okay? When your guest comes over at the last minute, you make microwave popcorn as a snack. Okay? Matzah is the fast food. Right? Uh, I was in Jerusalem at a restaurant. And it was one of these like, cool, neat kind of places. And every time we finished our lafas, flatbread that we had, right? What would happen? They would call over this dude who would walk over to the oven go like this. 20 seconds later, we had more lava on our table. It was that fast, okay? Like, it's the fast, immediate food. When you have guests coming over, you make something fast so they don't have to wait, right? So this is the same thing. Load has guests all of a sudden. Okay, let's make what we can in a hurry, okay? By the way, it's cold. You know, this whole, this whole notion that matzah is the food that you make quickly. Why are you having matzah? Because we don't have time to let the bread rot. It's all related, okay? But over here we see that while Lot may be doing this for the purpose of making something fast for his people, there's another thing going on here in the eyes of the rabbis who composed this midrash, which is to say, oh, I'm making matzah because this is Pesach. Now, people always make fun of this kind of midrash. And what do they say? Ah, it's so cute! 
That's so cute. Uh, the rabbis were always trying to make it to the people who lived before the commandments actually took place that they were already keeping the Torah. Right? Well, could have had a pork sandwich because number one, pork wasn't traced yet. Right? Number two, it wasn't Jewish. Leave that aside. Okay? The point is that low eating matzah, you could look at it as, oh, he's killing Passover and his kids are asking about Ashtana, his daughters are sitting there, right? Or there's something else going on. Symbolic, something deeper is happening that the rabbis are trying to trigger within us. Which is, as a number of you have alluded to, the fact that when one sits there and goes through this process, this is a sense of Pesach This was Passover. Does it mean that it was on the 14th of Nisan and that he was sitting there eating a lamb and eating marrow with it? No. The point is that this is his redemption moment. Why is this his redemption moment? Because what's about to happen? The destruction. The destruction of stone, paralleling the destruction of Egypt. And remember that in the Bible, Egypt and stone are parallel to each other. They're the two places that are considered to be these green places that don't require rain. They flood, right? Stone is in the Jordan Valley. The river comes and takes care of your irrigation for you. Egypt is the Nile Valley, okay? The river comes and takes care of your irrigation for you. You just have to set it up. But you don't have to pray for rain like we do in the rest of the land of Israel. Right there, you have to pray for rain. You're living in the hills. It's all about the clouds coming. You're not waiting for some brook to come because you're already up at the top of the river. Okay? So what do you do? In these other places... You just sit there, and therefore they're considered to be godless places. It's also because they're urban places, but that's a whole other conversation. So here's what we have over here. We have Lot appreciating the fact that he is celebrating now some sort of Passover experience. These men who have come, midrashically, are angels who are coming to save him from what? From the destruction that's going to happen tomorrow. His whole family is going to make it out. Not so much. Just him and his daughters. His wife gets turned into a pillar of salt. His sons-in-law disappear. Right? He's celebrating his moment of redemption. Okay? And I think one of the powerful things just about that is to say that on Passover, we, as we kind of project a sense of, of our own redemption onto the story of Passover, how do we relate to that story of Passover? Are we able to take Passover, which happened thousands of years ago, and make it our own? Okay? And that is a question that we're going to come back to in a few minutes as well. Quick question. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I just wanted to ask because we, you know, when you talk about like the valleys and, and you know, you have to put in a lot of effort, and you have, you know, there's, there's the, con- the contrast between having to sit there and you know, and, and the, the irrigation just happens versus having to put in a lot of effort and having to work really hard and, and be active and be proactive. Yeah. Whereas, but but here, Lot is putting in literally the barest minimum of effort. I mean, there is a, there is a beautiful quality to saying, oh, we don't want to have to have our guests wait, but you can make them wait a little longer and yeah, do a little yeah, more. Yeah, yeah, that's true, that's true. But the sense of why he's really making matzah for them is because it's that they, they, he wants to give them something immediate, right? Good point. And actually, if you contrast this with what happened right before with Abraham, where the same people come, right? He makes the matzah also, but what else does he do? He makes the feast. He makes a whole other feast for them, involving milk and meat, incidentally, right? Yes, hi, come Okay, so good. So I would say that that's the same kind of thing, right? He makes something immediate for them, okay. and then he has more time afterwards and they able to do other stuff, right? You pull out some, some quick food for people, and then they're not as hungry, and then they say, okay, yeah, let's talk, let's say, tell me about yourselves, and let me make a whole meal for you. You're, you would be the I think the rabbis want to read the matzah as much more profound, right? But that's the point. And you can see it as something profound if you put it into the context of this being a Passover celebration for him. Meaning he knows he's going to be redeemed tomorrow, right? That's the point. He knows tomorrow something special is going to happen. So therefore, what does he do at this point? He has matzah because that becomes this currency of, of celebrating liberation. That's how some people want to read this. Okay? Keeping all of that in mind, I wanted to take a jump now. Okay? Let's look now and move from Passover to Purim. Okay? Now, who mentioned before that, was that you? Said that, that it was interesting that I said that Purim is a biblical holiday when Purim doesn't actually appear in the Torah, but it does appear in the Bible, right? Meaning, the Megillah of Esther, the scroll of Esther, is a biblical book. Okay? And that's a really interesting thing, because we're going to see how that relates back to Purim and Pesach and Pesach. 
Okay? So hold on for a second. Someone want to read this next piece here? The sages taught? The sages taught 48 prophets and 7 prophetesses prophesied on behalf of the Jewish people. And they neither subtracted nor added onto what is written in the Torah except for the reading of the Megillah. What exposition? <coughs> Rabbi Thea Bar Avin said Rabbi Yehoshua ben Korcha said, If from slavery to freedom we recite songs from death to life, it is not all the more so in the case of Purim. Is it not all the more so in the case of Purim? In other words, we're asking a question. If we are supposed to say praise, right? In other words, songs of praise, right? That's hallel, okay? That formula of psalms that we say in order to praise God. We say that on Passover, okay? At the Seder, right? As well as on the day of the holiday itself. We say hallel. And that's because what? We were saved from slavery to freedom, right? Power didn't want to kill us. He just wanted us to make us work really, really hard, right? So if we say Hallel then, then so too, what should else, else should we say Hallel? If we were saved, if our lives themselves were saved, which is when? Purim. Purim. So what's the problem, though? We don't actually say Hallel on Purim. Did you say Hallel is Purim? Neither did I, right? You said, you, right? Right? Like a shoal. No one said hollow. What? Guys, come on. We're saved. Our lives. Hollow. What's going on? Right? What is hollow? So the rabbis are very bothered by this. Okay? So what do they do? They find a number of different reasons as to why it is that we didn't say hollow. If so, let us recite hollow. No. Because hollow is not recited in America. Look for it outside of Eretz Israel. Right? That makes sense. Right? Ah! But wait a second. Passover happened outside of Eretz Israel. Right? Doesn't make any sense, right? So, with regards to the Exodus from Egypt as well, which was a miracle that occurred outside of Israel, how are we able to recite songs of praise, right? In other words, wait a second. You just told me that we don't say hallel on Purim because Purim happens in Persia, not in Israel. But Passover happens in Egypt, not in Israel. But we hadn't even seen the land at that point. Okay, so. so wait for things to develop here a little bit, okay? So, it keeps going, okay? So the answer is, as it is taught in a bright, so the fifth paragraph down over there on the bottom of page two, prior to the time when the Jewish people entered Eretz Israel, all lands were deemed fit for songs of praise to be recited for miracles performed within their borders, as all lands were treated equally. But after the Jewish people that entered into Eretz Israel, that land became endowed with greater sanctity and all the other lands were no longer deemed fit for songs of praise and to be recited for miracles performed within them. In other words, once the Jews enter into Israel, only things that happen when within Israel are worthy of hallel. Things that happen outside of Israel, from that point on, can't get hallel. Now that's really important, because guess what? All the times when we say hallel for biblical things happen before we enter into Israel. Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot are all festivals that commemorate their, biblical, their, their, their agricultural holidays, but the historic events that they commemorate all take place during our 40 years in the desert. Passover is the Exodus, Shavuot is receiving the Torah, and Sukkot is talking about how God protected us while we were in the desert. Those are all things that happened before in, 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 in Israel, right? Way like Purim is, is the thousands of years later, right? The only other holiday that's left Hanukkah. when we say Hallel is Yom Well, we're going to get to that. Hanukkah. Rabbinically, Hanukkah. We'll talk about Yom Hanukkah afterwards. Okay, and we're going to talk about both of those. Hanukkah takes place in Israel, so it's okay. Hanukkah actually is the only holiday that we celebrate that actually celebrates events that took place in Israel, to the best of my knowledge, right? Where certainly Hallel, right? And we'll talk about those later holidays later on. Now, let's just keep going a little bit. Okay, so first of all, one answer is, oh, well, Israel, not in Israel. This event happened when we had already gone into Israel, and then we're exiled, so it doesn't really count anymore, so we can't say how little about it. Okay? <coughs> Other possibilities included here, and I'll just tell you this quickly. The reading of the Megillah itself is an act of reciting Hallel. Okay? In other words, what does that mean? What does that mean? Think about Hallel. When we recite Hallel, 
We say things like, the same Israel me Mitzrayim, when the Jews left Egypt. Okay? It's all about the event of the Exodus. It makes sense that we celebrate the Exodus with the verses of Hallel because they are psalms that talk about the Exodus. You want to think about God taking us out of Egypt, think about God taking us out of Egypt in the context of Passover. What's the parallel to that for Passover? For I prefer him, rather. The Megillah, right? The third answer that's given is that we don't really need to say Hallel on Purim because it's not a complete redemption. Yeah, our lives were saved, but guess what? At the end of the day, we were still in the diaspora. We weren't brought back to Israel, right? It's not a complete redemption. Passover is part of that redemptive process. We go from Egypt through the desert, yes, Shavuot, to go on the way, ultimately allowing us to arrive 40 years later, later entering into Eretz Israel. So the result of that is that we hold these answers as to why we don't say hollow on Purim. But here's what's really interesting. Clearly the rabbis are very bothered by the fact that we don't say hollow on Purim, and they try to find reasons why maybe we can, or maybe we do kind, or maybe we should. And what are they doing, though? They're drawing a parallel between Purim and Passover. And in fact, they continue to do this, and they talk about this idea, not from the Vega, they continue to talk about the idea, sorry, I saw two of you doing it. Like You're all right. They continue to do this and talk about this notion of smichat of connecting one one redemption to another. The first redemption in the Bible being Passover. The last in the Bible being what? Purim. Why do I say the last? Because Purim is a much later part of the Bible, the Megillah of Esther is included in the Bible indeed. And in fact, and this is really interesting, the Talmud talks about how reading the Megillah has unique status. We talk about usually, we have a third color, sorry, we talk usually about two different types of mitzvot, of commandments. What are they? Positive and negative. Positive and negative, that's good. That's good. That's one way to think about that. There's another two categories. Time bound and not time bound. You can get everything besides like what I'm about to say. Good. So there's positive and negative. You both said that. There's time bound, sort of non time bound, these folks. So uh, prayer is time bound, but um, making a bracha on food is not time bound, right? The right time. Thank you very much. Okay. The right time, also known as biblical. See, I said. We're back to red. Biblical and rabbinic. We need the space in the middle here for a reason. Now, what's an example of a biblical mitzvah? Keep my son Passover. Thank you. That's a great example. I wonder why you thought of that, right? Eating matzah, okay, the night of Passover night, okay, specifically. Okay? That's a biblical mitzvah. What's a rabbinic mitzvah? Four cups of wine. Okay, good. So the four cups of wine. Some may be actually do-raita, but the notion of four cups, we'll say, is because like Kiddush, maybe a, a biblical, maybe a biblical commandment, maybe. I'm not going to go there. But you're right, the four cups is an example of that, okay? Maror, in our context, maror is certainly a rabbinic mitzvah, okay? Just as another example, okay, four cups, or okay? Now, all mitzvot can be categorized into these two categories. We also have something over here on the spectrum of um, sort of commandments called customs, right? Minhagim, okay? So there's customs hanging out over here also. Okay, we've got these three categories. There's another category, however, that is unique to the mitzvah of reading Megillah, which is called a prophetic, not pathetic, prophetic mitzvah. Okay? Min ha ne vi from the prophets, okay? Normally, normally, the Talmud tells us, we don't learn commandments from the prophets, okay? Moshe says, wear tzitzit, we say, yes sir, we'll wear tzitzit, okay? The rabbis say, eat marwar today at the Seder, even if we don't have the Passover offering to eat it with, we say, yes rabbis, but the prophets, Joshua wakes up one morning and tells the children of Israel, from now on, wear orange hats. We say, we're Yankee fans. That's nice. We're Yankee fans, right? The black and white, I know, pinstripes is all on there. But the point is, to say, like, we don't care. It's nice that Joshua did that. But guess what? 
is irrelevant for our sense of commandedness. However, the Talmud says in Masechet Megillah, which we just read, specifically the mitzvah of reading the Megillah <coughs> is the the example of a prophetic mitzvah. Okay? So the rabbis kind of wedge it in, even though it's in the books of prophets, it's a later book that's a part of writings to me, it's a later writing, it still gets the status of something really special that's above a mere, as it were, rabbinic mitzvah. Okay? The rabbis wanted to sort of feel like a biblical commandment in some way. Okay? Now, I want to point out to you something. There are actually lots of connections between these two holidays. Okay? Can you guess what some of those are? What are some of the connections? Thematic. They both start with a P. Yeah. A P, a P in English, a P in Hebrew. Good. Good. They both have R's. They both have deeply involve women. They both what? Deeply involve deeply women. Deeply involve strong women, I would say. Right? Good. Where do you see that with Purim? Where do you see that with Pesach? The Miriam and Shepherd Pua. Right, okay, good. Well, Miriam, right, Miriam, Haro's uh, <coughs> daughter, okay, who's, you know, famous in modern times, she's a singer, but in those times, because she sings, that was a rabbi joke, right? Pharaoh's daughter, right? But also because what? Because she sings Moshe, and the whole story happens as a result of that, right? She names him, very powerful thing. Who else? What else? What else? Fun, give me some more. They both have like nutty kings. Ooh, good. Crazy kings going on here, right? Crazy, uh, despotic kings, influenced kings by others. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Haman is pulling the strings, right, to get out the spirits to do stuff. And then later on, maybe Esther is doing that in a better way, right? Good. Ah, 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 she's looking at it. Right? It's okay. So you can turn it on the page now. Some other examples. You hit a few of them. Let's take a look. And I would say not just nutty kings, but new kings. Right? In both stories, there are new kings described in, in the narrative. Okay? Jews with non-Jewish names, and, right? and the Midrash is the fact that four-fifths of the Jews in Egypt did not leave because they were assimilated. Okay? Jews with non-Jewish names just being a symbol of like, people assimilating. Okay? Who are the Jews with non-Jewish names in the story of uh, Mordecai and Esther? Mordecai and Esther. Right? Mordecai and Esther are very non-Jewish names. Okay? Marduk and Ishtar are names of ancient Mesopotamian deities. Okay? Don't name your kids Chris. Right? Like one of those Jewish rules. Okay? And it's okay if someone names your kid Chris, still let them have a but like it's really not one of those like really Jewish names that we get. Right? And yet, Mordecai and Esther are the heroes in the story. Okay? It's a very interesting thing. Where does it take place, guys? They're lined up. Galut, diaspora, outside of the land of Israel. Persia or Egypt, okay? Who's the hero? In Purim? Mordecai. Mordecai? And who's the hero in uh, one of the heroes? Okay, the male hero. Mordecai and Moshe, both of them are court Jews, right? And then you've got strong women that was mentioned, okay? Haman and Paro are both hang- hungry, power hungry men, okay? Ahasuerus too, you can certainly argue. Megillah at daytime and nighttime is the only time we have a mitzvah of the day that we do at night, okay? In terms of praising God, the only other time is when? Halon Pesach. Halon Pesach, okay? The only time we have Megillah at night, praising God, and before Halal, put Megillah reading to be Halal. The only time we have a mitzvah, you said. The, the pray, I meant the Halal part, I, I said it wrong, I apologize. Thanks for catching that. Do you? Don't you yeah. also get the mitzvah for Megillah reading, reading for the nighttime reading? Not yes, the it's both. Your mitzvah is both. Oh. And Halal also, we have a mitzvah at night as part of the Seder, and it's during the day because it's one of the holidays, so we do it during the day. Okay? That's unique. It's idiosyncratic to these two days. Okay, let's just look at the rest of these very quickly. Megillah has to be read and heard by everyone, even, you know, even though it's a time-bound commandment, women are commanded to hear the Megillah. Some would argue to read the Megillah and can actually have others fulfill the Megillah, even in a non-egalitarian context normally. Right? And guess what? Everyone has participated in the same. The whole family is there together. Look back at that source that we saw at the beginning. The fact that people bring people, we actually have to jo- we join together with others to do this. And the fact that we have a notion of Mishlach Manot, which some argue specifically in Mitzvah that's supposed to be done to help people fulfill their Mitzvah of having a Seder. Matanot Yonina, Ma'ot are both unique Mitzvot for facilitating poor people's opportunity to have the feast on these days. 
okay? The Suda and the state are both reenacting historic events of the day, okay? You read one of those already tonight. We have a fast that immediately proceeds. Both of these holidays take place on the 14th of the month in which they take place. The only two holidays that are 14th of the month holidays, okay? Normally we have it on the 15th, the middle of the month, the, the high point of the month in terms of the full moon, or a Rosh Kodesh kind of holiday, or, you know, follows from one of those. Uh, they're actually connected, as I said before, always a month apart from one another. The notion that they both lead to a sense of freedom for the people, redemption, that then leads to taking on commandments, right? The Megillah says, Kimu Vikiku, people took upon themselves the commandments, other people converted to Judaism, the same thing happens in the story of the Exodus, and it leads to actually getting back to Parsinai, so we can get the Torah, okay? Both of these holidays give us second chances to fulfill the mitzvah of the holiday. On Sukkot, you forget to sit in the sukkah for seven days of Sukkot. Can you sit in the sukkah a month later because it's so important to do Sukkot? Not so much. On Shavuot, if you wake up a month after Shavuot, you're like, oh, I forgot to tell all my own learns. It's a recent custom, that's why it's not like that. But like that notion of, you can't make up, you can't make up Shavuot in the same kind of way, right? But guess what? These holidays have makeup days. In the case of Pesach, it's a month later, Pesach Shemi. In the case of Purim, it's something that happens when? Ah, so you would think, right? That, but that's already Pesach, so it can be. It's actually a couple of days, it's, it's the next day you're in Jerusalem, it's divided up, but it's actually the days before. The Mishnah in Megillah says that the days preceding Purim, for people who live out in small towns, they can come together into the big towns and have people read Megillah to them on market days. So Purim is on Wednesday, right? The people from, uh, you know, here, we're in New York, right? The people from the Little Hinterlands, from Teaneck. Right? You come to Drisha on the Monday before, on the market day, to hear the, the Megillah, and just the last two, the, uh, sorry, the last one that's here. Uh, in both cases, there's a sense of Jews coming into power or, you know, as, as an important part of the story. Hi, yeah? Just thinking. Just thinking. Okay. Think away. No problem. Now, before we keep going, what is the connection then between these two holidays? Let's talk about that first. Okay, we're starting to wind down here a little bit. Why do we do this all? What's this exercise supposed to show us? To me, the rabbis in building Purim, the holiday, which is fundamentally a rabbinic holiday, even if it comes from the prophets, right? Mordecai is part of the Sanhedrin, right? It's part of the rabbis who are now creating these folks. As we go into the diaspora, something fundamental is going on here. If you look at all these different things, there's a sense that people want us to feel as though these two holidays are related to each other. Why is that? Why is this so important? I'm thinking a lot about freedom leads to mitzvot and the redemption piece because when we like look at Parham and think of it as well, like that's when we really took on the commandments. Okay. Um, Say more. What, where did you get that from? You're right. Like that. That's. I forget where I heard that this year. Um, someone else can help me with that. But just thinking about. This, um, this lead up, like even though yeah, I'm blanking now. But so, so there's a midrash that says like, that when the people stood below the mountain, that they were literally standing under the mountain. That God held the mountain over our heads. Yeah. God holds the mountain over us like a like a pot. Okay, and God basically says. You better accept the Torah, or this will be your burial place. That's what the Midrash said. Okay? And so the rabbis and the Talmud say, then how can we be held accountable if we don't follow the Mitzvah? How can we be held accountable? God, we're, we're coerced. We had no choice but to say, yes, I'll do this. Right? So the answer is, it's okay. Because at Purim, the Megillah says, keep moving, keep moving. You have it right here. They re-accepted the Mitzvah. And so that was done at a moment where we were not coerced. That was done at a moment of a feeling of salvation and desire to accept this upon ourselves. And therefore, we are now committed. So there you go. Right? There's yeah. a sense of Purim being another time when we accept. It's in itself a second chance. It is itself, itself a second chance. Good. What else? What are the other... What's going on here? Yeah. I think it's the... It's the beginning and the ending of the mythos in terms of, like, having... Like, having a God figure that exists to make miracles and then having a 
God figure this out. Good. So God is very prominent in the story of leaving Egypt. Okay? God's all over the place. There's plagues, there's commandment, there's miracles. I mean, you know, <clears throat> if you were there, it was pretty awesome, right? That's pretty clear from the Bible. However, on Purim, right, you feel God's presence all the time in the text, right? Mm-hmm. How many times does it say God's name in the yellow? Zilch, zero, not once, right? To the point where the rabbis decide, oh, guess what? Whenever the word Hamelech is used, that means the king, Dinah Ellis, right? That any time the word the king is used, it could be a reference to God in the story in some way, right? Stress. The rabbis are trying to redraw God into the story of the Megillah because the rabbis are very bothered by the fact that you have an entire book of the Bible without God. Whoa! Bible, God, they're like together. Not an Esther. Esther, I'm missing, right? But that's the whole point. Let's go at that point one a little further, right? Then that's the whole point. That this story, Passover, God is prominent, God is felt. We're on our way into Israel, we're going to feel God, it's the land of God, it's the land, as I said before, where God's presence is felt every day, because when it rains, you know God is there, because the natural phenomena of the land are not conducive to being comfortable, so we need a relationship with God. But guess what just happened? I forgot to breathe. Guess what just happened? We now leave Israel, we're in the diaspora. God's missing. The non-Jews, right? It's crazy. No one's going to take care of us. God's absent. God's not in the story. And what happens? We have to find God behind the scenes. The very name of the scroll of Esther is Megillat Esther, which literally means the scroll of Esther, but it's also a pun. Megillat means revelation of Esther, of that which is hidden. We look deeper to find God behind the scenes. And so, that's why we need, first of all, to connect these two redemptions to each other and find a sense that Purim really is the next Passover. Okay, one second. But it's also why we need a different kind of Passover for the future, the Purim model. Because guess what? Here we are in the diaspora. The prophetic age is ending. Mordecai and Esther are sitting there seeing this going on and they say, you know what, we need a new kind of story. We need a story where we find God in the hidden. Because God's not so obvious out here anymore. And just like the rabbis and the generations that will follow, create a Torah which is mobile, which is able to go with us and not be bound to the temple, that what happens here? We're creating a faith system that also allows for God to be present even as God is hidden. Here's what's so powerful about that. We think of the holiday season as going from, now that we have this conversation, as going from Passover to Purim and then back around again. But to me, the most wonderful time of the year, to quote from a non-Jewish holiday season, is actually that which comes right after the holiday season has ended. What do I mean by that? There are two times of the year that are holidays where we have inserted other holidays. There's actually more. We're going to get back to that in a second. But someone alluded to Hanukkah before who mentioned Hanukkah? I did. Sorry? The winter and the summer. So let's get back to the summer <laughs> in a second. Let's talk about the winter first. Hanukkah. Hanukkah happens at the darkest moment of the year, right? It is the darkest time of the month, the 25th of the month, as the moon is disappearing of the darkest month of the year, Kislev, December, right? It's the darkest time of the year. And what happens? We put a holiday there. And we celebrate with holiday. Okay? What gives the rabbis license to create new holidays? Certainly holiday. Answer? Oh, correct. It's a holiday that comes from the prophets. Model on a biblical holiday, giving us license then to say, we can rabbis, we can keep creating new holidays. And let's take that a step further now. Okay? What's the other set of holidays that we have? So now we look at Yom HaTzmaut. Now we look at sort of that time between Passover and Shavuot, at least, and think about Yom HaTzmaut. Think about the sad days that are there too, Yom HaShoah, Yom HaTikaron, and then the last happy holiday as well, Yom Yerushalayim. Days that are modern inventions. What gives us license? What gives us the right to create those holidays? Well, guess what? 
Just like Purim took some time and was debated about how are we going to celebrate, what's it going to look like, <laughs> Hendricks talking about it, people of those generations. Is this going to be something which is Lido wrote for future generations or just the people who experience this redemption in this generation? And Hanukkah is the same thing. You know that with Hanukkah there's a whole fight, right? What are we really celebrating in Hanukkah? Is it the miracle of the oil? Or is it the miracle of the fact that it was Rabin Be'ad Natin? The fact that many were defeated by few? Right? And that's a whole controversy there because, well, if it's many defeated by few, then we're no longer celebrating that redemption because we're now under Roman you know, rule instead of being under the Greek rule that we were able to get off of us, then if should we still celebrate that, right? Are we still celebrating that redemption? And the answer is, oh no, don't worry, there was also this miracle of the oil. In other words, they're trying to find a way to say, no, we should still celebrate it, it's not applicable anymore. Well, there's still controversy about Yom HaKadot today. Right? It's the same kind of thing. We're fighting over whether or not something happened that is worth celebrating, and if it was worth celebrating, whether it was worth celebrating for generations. Celebrating or mourning, depending on which of those days we're talking about. And what's so powerful, you should see that struggle taking place in real time. But here's the other thing. You think this is the only Purim in the world? Guess what? Different Jewish communities and different Jewish individuals over generations had actually created their own local celebrations. Turn the page for a second. We're almost up. Five more minutes, ten more minutes, and we're done. Let's just look at one or two of these as a starting point, okay? Someone want to volunteer to read one of these for us? Go ahead. Pick any one you want of these three. They're all good. Don't worry. I'll start with the first one. Take it away. Okay. <laughs> the Purim of Abraham Dante, also known as the Powder Purim. Okay? Take it away. <clears throat> Memorial Day established for himself and his family by Abraham Danzig to be annually observed by fasting on the 15th of Kislev and by fasting on the evening of the same day in commemoration of the explosion of a powder, powder magazine at Wilma in 1804. By this accident, 31 lives were lost and many houses destroyed, among them the home of Abraham Danzig, whose family and Abraham himself were all severely wounded, but escaped death. Um, but escaped death. death. <laughs> Danzig decreed that on the evening of uh, the evening following the 15th of Kislev, a meal should be prepared by his family to which Talmudic scholars were to be invited, and alms should be given to the poor. During the, the feast, during the feast, certain psalms were to be read and hymns were to be sung until Almighty for the miraculous escape from death. What does it sound like to you? What are we doing? We're giving tzedakah. We're right. We're eating food, right? We're talking about how there's a miraculous escape, right? It's a program, okay? It's a little It's a, oh, good. Well, guess what? If there's anything we learned tonight, the program and Passover are actually closely related to each other, right? You can't really create one without thinking about the other, okay? All of these, and there are many, many more examples of this phenomenon of local programs that were created by various Jewish communities to celebrate different things that took place, okay? And by the way, lest you think, oh my gosh, how could I think that these people are celebrating when all these other 31 other people were killed? Well, we destroyed the Exodus. We destroyed Perth. People are killed, other people survive, those people celebrate. Right? The nature of, of any of this stuff. I want to look at one final story here because there's actually a firm that was established based on events that took place in the United States. In, in you know, the lifetime of people who are us or people who are not much older than we are. Okay? The Frimmer family firm. Who knows the, the name Frimmer? Frimmer family is a family that is now in Israel. There's three brothers um, who are rabbis uh, and, and actually academics who have put together amazing works of, of Jewish scholarship in the last generation. Their father, Rabbi, I believe Norman Frimmer was his name, uh, and he was the leader, the director of Hillel International in 1977 when a group of Islamic terrorists took over the Benegrith Hillel headquarters in Washington, D.C. What do you think is going to happen? Let's make a Purim, right? So let's read the story. Special Purim is a local family, is a, or a local or family celebration of deliverance of activity or dangerous situation. One contemporary Purim was established by Norman Frimmer, there's the same, I saw right there, after the March 9, 1977 takeover of the Washington, D.C. headquarters of the name of Benegra. During the 39-hour ordeal, Rabbi Frimmer said that he thought the thought of establishing a Frimmer family Purim crossed his mind. He remembered the firm established by Maimonides and another private firm and planned 
when liberated, that he would not forget the day of terror. He established a personal fast day. Ah, that's another modeling on these two that we had before. Fast day on the 20th of Adar, and the 21st was established by his family as Purim Katan. So literally a week after the rest of us finish Purim, they go back to it again. The Frimer family council discussed the subject concerning the halakhic sources, form, and content of the assurances in liturgy. They debated their association with Shahiyan and Hala. Sound like today before debating whether or not we should say that stuff? Should they impose the observance on the grandchildren? Is it enough, in other words, that only the people who are there experience the celebration personally? Do we celebrate or do we say something that we pass on for future generations? That makes me think more about Yom HaShoah, right? Does Yom HaShoah, for people in our generation, those of us who are grandchildren, let's say, and great-grandchildren of survivors, okay, some of us, I am, right? Do we think of Yom HaShoah as a personal day of mourning in some way, or maybe other days around things that happened in the Shoah, or do they get lumped together with, with uh, Tisha B'Av, like all the other days of mourning, right? Just like the Crusades, right? At some point, people remember the Crusades, felt the Crusades, oh, my grandmother was in the Crusades, was under a grunt, this and that, right? Or does it, but now it gets lumped together with all the other keynotes that we say, all the other things that we say about the sad things that happen as part of our observance of Tisha B'Av. After a year of discussions, letters, and phone calls, they decided the grandchildren would be part of the celebrations at least while the grandfather was alive. In other words, according to this, at least until 1993. They would observe, they would serve as festive meals, words of Torah, singing, psalms from Hollow, selections from the dinner, and other psalms from the Jewish experience. The Firmer Family Council further said that they have an under 21 would be commemorated with the act of tzedakah and family Torah study during the day or during the Suda. Grandchildren would participate in the celebration on a voluntary basis in consultation with their parents. Pagara Rabbitzma, they would decide to accept the observance as an obligation. Kimu Kimu. Over the years of celebration, they found a fixed liturgy that included the exact psalms that they would recite. Okay? Where I further actually talked about this in a book that I had almost gotten my hands on at the YU Library, and will hopefully get my hands on being able to finally finish putting this lecture together with that piece. It should be on this page instead of someone describing this on his website, which is lovely, but not exactly the first information that I'd like to share with you. My point in all of this, my friends, is that I want us to think about Passover and Purim, modeled on Passover, and these other Purims that come later, Hanukkah and others, as license to us, modern Am Yisrael, to think about how it is that we take the events of our own experience and make them religious celebrations. Yes, we maintain a sense of loyalty to those which happened in previous generations. We will celebrate Passover next week. We will celebrate Purim in another 11 months or whatever it is, right? We will do all of that. We will continue to do all of that with fervor, with joy, with all of the things that go into it. But I ask us to think about how do we celebrate the events of our lives? Do we see religious significance in them? Do we find God in the hidden as Mordecai and Esther did? And do we feel a sense of kiula, of redemption in modern events, in events of the history of our people and of our own lives? So it's a challenge, but it's also an exciting time that we can actually do that. That is something which is part of Jewish tradition for us to continue that legacy of celebration and of excitement in our own lives. I'm happy to talk, but that's it. <laughs> um, any questions, comments, complaints? Take it away. I, um, I just wanted to say that I'm particularly excited about the one question of it is, um, you mentioned something that seems like to you need to be a coincidence, which is that Purim is on the 14th and then Hanukkah is on the 14th. Um, and Purim is chosen on the 14th because that's the day that Hanukkah is supposed to. So the lock came out. Right. Well, um, but like, presumably they could have chosen any day uh, like for the holidays and as they were writing. So I guess so. All they did it all day because that's when they finished the battles, right? In other words, that's the day when they finally won because Haman's decree was that that was the day when they were going to be killed, and so they fought, and that's when they ultimately were able to, the day before, and were ultimately able to celebrate on that day. Yeah, I guess I was thinking about, like, as they were writing this holiday, as they were putting together that yeah. decision on the holiday, um, how much how much intention they had, like, you clearly firm is like well after Passover and so if as you were saying they're trying to establish this sort of like new way to celebrate holidays in the diaspora, um, I'm curious if they really thought about it and they're like, oh well Passover is on the fourteenth of the next month and this 
is on the 14th. They could have chosen a different day, which is like Esther was chosen to be the queen, or like any sure. other commemorative sure. day sure. holiday. Yeah. And do you think that how how non-coincidental do you think it is that they really chose the number 14 to proceed? Here's what I here's what I think. I think that when I look at a list like this, there's more, right? We, these people here mentioned a few more that aren't on this list tonight. I look at a list like this, it parallels between these two holidays. You can always say that there are a couple that may be coincidental. So when you start to see a list, people ask that are going to talk, right? That, to me, creates a confluence of evidence that says, hmm, it's really interesting. Why is it that at the end of the day, this random lottery happened to come out so that at the end of the day, on the 13th, so that then they would have to celebrate, you know, get to celebrate a day later. And by the way, you, you know, there's a little bit of a, a, a kind of a game going on because when do we actually celebrate Passover? Really, we celebrate on the night going into the 15th, right? That's Shushan Purim, actually, right? Which is celebrated based on when Jerusalem, right? It's all, which is where Passover is supposed to be celebrated. It's interesting, okay? And what's, what's kind of cool is that the 14th uh, and the 15th, again, becomes a, it's sort of a two-day holiday, kind of you know, straddling the two days in terms of Purim and in terms of Passover. Biblically, there are actually two holidays that abut each other, that abut one another, right? You've got Passover, Pesach, and then Hamatzot, the festival of Matzot, which actually goes from the 15th through the 21st of the month. So it keeps going. And so it's interesting to think about kind of, you know, 14th to 14th, yeah, I think, you know what, if they had the choice, they would have wanted it to be in such a way that it created another one of these, you know, because that they're, yeah. And I think they're looking at this and saying, wow, this is a modern celebration of redemption. Do you think that the Jews in the Purim story celebrating Passover? It's a really good question. And Four weeks later. Well, well, you've got, I, I, I would actually ask the question differently. Some people want to read, if you read when it is, that uh, the, the, well, the feast may have taken place, and actually the fast could have taken place on Passover itself. That instead of having a Passover seder, it's possible that the Jews in Shushan were actually fasting. Because it was a year. Remember that the, the, the whole there's a whole you know, Esther. So the decree takes place. The the lottery takes place during the month of Nisan. Esther then. Mordechai sends a message to Esther and says, you got to do something. So I can't do anything, huh? right? No, okay, you have to go, right? You have to go, you have to go, you have to go. And ultimately, right, this will be that. Right? On, on that note, Rabbi Yitzchak is a fascinating piece of Torah that you get a lot of trouble for saying to the wrong people, but like, um, I'll say to you, which is that um, <laughs> he sees the first story not as a story of um, kind of the religious people saving the day, but as a story of the secular people saving the day. You read Mordechai and Esther, you can read them as these very, very religious Jews. You can also read them as very, very secular Jews. And actually, the story makes a little more sense if you think about them as secular Jews, because Esther's doing a going to a beauty contest, a married, a non-Jewish king, right? Look at their names, right? All these different things. It makes almost more sense for them to be less religious characters. And then it's a beautiful thing because they have this sort of coming of age moment as Haman oppresses them. The anti-Semite comes along, and Mordechai and Esther are like, "Whoa, we've got to be more Jewish." Right? And they step up to the plate and they save the people. So it's kind of another way to think about the story. And actually that's a very interesting angle on the story when you think about it in the context of the diaspora specifically where there is so much assimilation. Right? Just like there was in Egypt. Also a diaspora before we go to Israel. So it's more time in the Sanhedrin? Good. So that he's in the Sanhedrin later on, okay? We know that he's some sort of prominent figure, which is why he was exiled, and you know, talks about that at the beginning of the Megillah. And at the same time, right, if you actually read the text itself, it's, 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 it's right? The rabbis in Masechet Megillah and Midrash build it up. The whole story of, oh, they must have been married to each other, because otherwise how could they live alone with each other if he adopted her? But wait a second, let me get into trouble because if she's a married woman, how is she then going ahead and living with Ahasuerus? Oh no, the rabbis explain that away too. The more you try to explain the story, the more you get into trouble and create even more difficult, interesting Midrashim. And the rabbis, it's almost like when they're reading these Midrashim, it's like, it feels like they must be celebrating her. Yeah. I'm struck by <coughs> when you were talking about the, n the possible names of God in in the names of God, yeah. Yeah. Um, I was struck by 
I, I think someone, I, I forget who told me this, someone was like, yeah, there's a couple places where Makum shows up in, in, the, in the Megillah. Um, so that's where God is. And Baruch HaMakom in... Great, there's another parallel for you. Great, right? Because Baruch HaMakom, Baruch Hu, that's a prominent kind of theme within the Haggadah, right? And and to the Nikila. So I have to look back to find the Nikila, but I'll, I'll take your word for it offhand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. So, Chakashir Vesameach, everyone.